Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Tasha Robinson. Scott Tobias. Rachel Handler. And producer Genevieve Kosky. This week, we're talking about Andrew Stanton's 2012 Mars adventure, John Carter, and The Martian, a Ridley Scott film released last fall that's since been nominated for several Academy Awards. These two films offer the sort of study and contrast we love here at the Next Picture Show. The Martian, like the Andy Weir novel that inspired it, is full of complicated science, but tells a relatively simple story. Boy meets planet, boy gets stranded on planet, boy has to use logic, knowledge, and reasoning to leave planet. John Carter, on the other hand, is pure fantasy, but creates a world so Byzantine in its intricacies that many viewers found it hard to follow, including us. Um, (laughs) But the films are united by their heroes. It's not hard to imagine Mark Watney using his intelligence and will to survive to navigate Burroughs' Barsoom. Similarly, assuming he had a little more scientific training, John Carter would probably draw on the same resourcefulness to make it off the planet. Is it possible that The Martian is simply a John Carter story for a more scientifically informed age? I have no way to contact NASA, and even if I could, it's going to be four years until a manned mission can reach me. And I'm in a hab designed to last 31 days. If the oxygenator breaks, I'm going to suffocate. If the water reclaimer breaks, I'll die of thirst. If the hab breaches, I'm just going to kind of implode. And if by some miracle none of that happens, eventually I'm going to run out of food. So. Yeah. All right, guys, let's back up to my last assertion. Is The Martian essentially a John Carter story for, for a more scientifically informed age? No. No. <laughs> I don't think so. I was going to say that, too. No. All right. Maybe well, else. we're done here. No, we're, well, I mean, for one, it's just it, Mars. It's, it's the physics. I mean, it's a little bit closer to, you know, Mars. Uh, <laughs> what they were doing Mars. to be fair, was working with the best scientific information he okay. had. 
<laughs> about the bone density and that sort of thing. <laughs> um, but um, so no, it's not. It's not that. It's uh, and it actually kind of brings me to my topic. Now, can I just get my topic out of the way yeah, now? Yeah, sure. Uh, your topic about the virtues of simplicity, <laughs> um, because that is that is as you mentioned in your intro, a pretty big difference between the two films. You know, The Martian is not. 2001 or Solaris. It's, uh, it's not even Star Wars. Uh, it makes a virtue of simplicity. Matt Damon is stuck on Mars. He has to figure out how to get unstuck. And that process is a clear, methodical, problem-by-problem, narrative-through line that is immediately accessible to us as an audience. Uh, John Carter, on the other hand, introduces you to a pile of mythology and multiple timelines and two framing devices before it even gets going. And a hero that doesn't really want to do anything. Yeah, there's that too. I mean, and I, I think, you know, in a way that simplicity is limiting to the Martian, which is, uh, you know, I think such a pure affirmation of the optimism and wonder and intellectual adventure of the space program. But there's something to be said about a film so committed to clear stakes and a clear narrative. And I think John Carter could have used some of that. You know, the reluctant messiah is one of my least favorite tropes in any kind of narrative. Talk about simplicity. There is something so simplistic and and direct and approachable and and believable and attractive about a story about a hero who is in the position he's in because he wants to be and has to t- has to deal with things as they come like Mark Watney has all of these problems to deal with mm-hmm. that he didn't choose but he's not on Mars because he was dragooned into it or because it was an accident he's he's a scientist he loves being a scientist he has all of this knowledge that he worked hard to acquire and he puts it into good use he's such an appealing character compared to John Carter or really anyone who has to spend an hour hour and a half of the story being convinced to do the thing <laughs> that needs to be done in the place he's found himself I just I hate the reluctant messiah trope so much mm-hmm. because it's like we all know what we want to see we want to see somebody who is engaged with what they're doing doing it like how hard is that yeah and I think it says something I mean I'm horribly bad at science but I understood the Martian very clearly and I was so confused by John Carter that I had to stop and read Wikipedia <laughs> to understand what was going on I felt so much stupider watching John Carter than I did watching the Martian which is funnier because it's, it's funny because it's just it's such a stupider movie it is but I was like I can't even grab like what's a Thark I don't understand what's a Thern I just was really confused but was it just because there are so many different uh, factions being thrown at you all at once yeah, and I think like immediately they're like Scott said earlier they're fighting on Mars and then he's dead. I'm like, how is he dead? This whole movie's about him. Like, I don't understand. <laughs> I just, I literally turned pause it and turned to my boyfriend. I was like, but that's the title of the movie. I don't understand. <laughs> it, I mean, The Martian is is it is good at walking you through some complicated yeah. stuff. Yeah. You know, and I think the fact that it is one very simple goal, which is survive and escape, or two goals, I guess. But but uh, I think it's easy to relate to. I, right. I think there is a virtue of simplicity there. That said, I, as much as I, I do value simplicity, especially in like this kind of linear storytelling where we have a clear goal that we have to get to, and one of these films makes a beeline towards it, and the other wanders all over the landscape, mm-hmm. I do have a not so secret love of the complex. Well, there that this that the Martian does lack. And a certain complexity. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things that does appeal to me about John Carter is, like, as much as I dislike the reluctant Messiah, I like the world around him, you know, and the fact that they do pile on all of this political stuff. I think it's mishandled, and I think you're dead on about the fact that introducing all of this stuff that you don't need to know up front as the first part of the film and then cutting away from it for half an hour, I think that was was just a mistake. But the fact that there are so many factions and there's so much going on and that Mars is this 
crazy old world with apparently millennia of traditions. I like I liked that. I liked the the Tharks complicated, I don't even know, religion, politics. It's all kind of one big mushy thing. I thought they were a really interesting race. And you get the feeling that they're that they've been around for a long time and have built up a lot of tradition. Well you you can puzzle you actually find yourself trying to puzzle it out. Mm-hmm. You don't puzzle out anything in the Martian. You watch the Martian and it's over. So I think that is I mean so there there again there's the virtue of complexity. Complexity. Not instead of simplicity. Um it's just not as satisfying an experience uh, as as uh, the Martian is. But one thing I do really appreciate about uh, the Martian is that it's not just simply, you know, a lot of survival t- tales are about are about will and about stick to And there's certainly that here. I mean, there is that will and that stick to But this is a film that is also makes a virtue of knowledge of like knowing things and being and, and being able to solve problems and not um you know it's not a miracle that he gets off of mars i mean you know he does have there's luck involved and there is will involved but it's about facing a series of problems and trying to work your way through them one at a time that and that getting you off the planet and that's a kind of i think in a, certainly in the america of today mm-hmm. uh is kind of refreshing you know because you you face you're especially you know you're faced with a lot of you know anti-science people or mm-hmm. people who are who think that prayer is going to is responsible for uh, uh there i remember seeing like when we had uh the washington post reporter was released from iran it was like oh, our prayers have been answered not that prayers were answered it was it was it was released because of diplomacy you know from actual hard work from people who know what they're doing and and that is a virtue that i'm happy to see celebrated and really like uh like the martian yeah it's there is kind of the feeling with john carter you know he he's transported to mars and suddenly it, he's like superman on earth like he is suddenly gifted with all of these abilities that he did nothing to earn. And it's a fun wish fulfillment fantasy to think about being gifted with these powers and being given the opportunity to make a difference in the world via no effort or even worthiness of your own, just sort of as a sheer accident. But there's something really appealing in The Martian about the way it portrays all of this stuff as its acquired knowledge. It's knowledge that he worked for. And he was specifically selected for this mission because because he was, uh, you know, an intelligent, top of the line person who worked really hard to get where he is. He's the right person to be in this situation because he's a really smart, good thinker who put in the time and the effort to know all of the things he knows about biology and chemistry and astrophysics. Science. <laughs> whereas, those are, those whereas, are all aspects of science. Whereas Deja Thoris just kind of ran across the ninth way. <laughs> Ray. I'm still just boggling. She built that machine. She's a. Did she? Are we sure she built that machine? I think so. She's. Yes, she's a professor. professor. She's going to get tenure. (laughs) (laughs) Only if she can prove that the Ninth Ray actually means something. (laughs) Because there's that scene. Oh my God, the anti science of the scene where she's like, I don't need to marry this guy. I've invented the Ninth Ray. Look, here's a blue glowing ray. This means we're going to be able to bring back the oceans we're going to be able to make mars fertile again we're going to have crops um, we're going to be able to fight the bad guys and it's like i don't know about you but i see a glowing laser right like show me how a laser makes crops grow she didn't, she didn't get a chance they destroyed the thing yes she didn't get a chance but I, I guarantee you that the next scene wasn't going to be her pressing a button and then the laser making uh oceans she, she's, she's sci- making an she educated science the guess. Out of that. yeah <laughs> she's science it was a hypothesis she's gonna prove it <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, there's a whole there's a whole movie you don't see, which is right. her like puzzling through stuff like Mark Watney. It's just her on Mars. <laughs> oh my god, Perfectly I want to see that up movie. And 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 and, and, and uh, you know, flowing yet revealing clothing. Right. You know, underboob. Uh, yeah. When we <laughs> when we get that movie, can it be called Deja Thoris, Scientist of Mars? Because <laughs> I would watch the ever living bleep out of that movie. <laughs> We're doing a good job with the. Uh, we really are, guys. With, with we're really trying to. Here? We're trying to dodge the explicit tag. So, and speaking of laughing, our collective beeps off. Speaking <laughs> of hilarious films, so The Martian won the Golden Globe for Best Comedy, which was obviously a controversial moment. Paul Feig thinks it's not a comedy. He tweeted that comedies are created with the express purpose of making people laugh. Judd Apatow went on sort of a semi-drunken rant uh, at an award <laughs> show recently about how he, Matt Damon was screwing them all over. Yeah, the so, Golden Globes when Ridley Scott accepted, he was just like comedy, thanks. huh? Okay, yeah. well thanks for the award, <laughs> right, guys. Right, right. So I, I, I personally would not qualify as a comedy, but it's often very funny. There is a lot of humor that relieves tension and I, for me, I think a lot of the humor came from this self-awareness that it was, a lot of people after the movie came out, I can't remember who said this first, but we're saying it was sort of a competence porn, like everyone was just so good at their jobs and that was like the whole movie, like oh, everyone's just really great at what they do and then and now it's over. And I think that for me, the humor sort of served to undercut that a little bit and make it a little bit more relatable. Let's do the math. Our service mission here was supposed to last 31 souls. For redundancy, they sent 68 souls worth of food. That's for six people. So for just me, that's going to last 300 souls, which I figure I can stretch to 400 if I ration. So I got to figure out a way to grow three years worth of food here on a planet where nothing grows. Luckily, I'm a botanist. Mars will come to fear my botany powers. So, you know, there's obviously a lot of humor to to cut through tension and to cut through the drama. Did you guys think it was a comedy? I mean, I don't think it should have been categorized (laughs) as a comedy. But, I mean, I I defended it at the time. Like, I don't know, Ricky Gervais at the Golden Globes made some sneery comments about it being a comedy. And I understand he was playing to the fact that it was in the comedy category and that was inappropriate. But it is a really funny movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A really funny movie is not a comedy, though. It's just a really funny movie. (laughs) That is true. But uh, humor helps. I mean, it's a very entertaining movie. It's the most watchable of the Oscar nominees, I guess, in terms of the most, in terms of just something you want to sit down and be taken away by. So in that sense, it it works. But uh, yeah, I mean, the humor humor helps in this. I think in the way you say say it does to humanize a bunch of nerds. I mean, it also it's just so crucial to varying the tone of what could have been a wearying slog in the wrong hands. And I mean, the the humor comes directly out of Andy Weir's novel. Like that character, that tone are very, very much in the novel. But there's so much need throughout the movie. You know, this guy is in danger of his life for pretty much the entire run of the film. Mm -hmm. You kind of, in order to have a rise and fall, you need to release that tension from time to time. And his smart-ass comments are a big part of what does it. I think that also just sets its a character apart from from being just sort of a, a faceless wonk in a way, you know. Um, it's just it's it's an easy way into a character whose knowledge and competence would might be a little forbidding otherwise. Yeah, for sure. And it, I think it speaks to a, his optimism. You know, even in this impossible situation, he can have some some humor and squeeze some humor out of it. And I'm you know I'm grateful that The Martian is not Alejandro Gonzalez in your teams of The Martian. <laughs> if you can imagine that, I mean, oh, I think you can, you, can ima- you can imagine a version of this film where the conditions 
of Mars, which which is colder, I will say, than any of the places where <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hardy were. Um, and they had such a rough shoot shooting on Mars. I, I mean, it was... <laughs> it was... Yeah, nobody talks about it, but Mars is really cold. Um, that raw Martian meat, raw <laughs> Thark. <laughs> they climbed inside the four-armed uh, ape for warmth. Face the was... ninth ray. Yeah. He does actually yeah, climb that, inside that, that four-armed the, ape. The, the ape would be actually a pretty, pretty warm, oh, yeah. I would think. The thing about John Carter, I think that maybe people didn't get from the trailers and didn't appreciate because they didn't see it, is that it also is a pretty funny movie, too. I mean, I don't think it gets enough credit for being a funny movie. And I think that's mostly in Andrew Stanton's direction. Like, there's there's a bunch of it in the script. It doesn't really come across so much in Kitch's performance or Colin's performance. But there are just there are bits like the, the, the thing towards the beginning where the cavalry arrests him yep. and and a character played by Brian Cranston is trying to say, you're really competent and we want to recruit you. And every time he gets three words into the speech, either uh, Carter knocks him out or <laughs> jumps out the window. And it happens so quickly. And the comic timing of it is so perfect. And I'm like, that, I know. that's an Andrew There's Stanton the movie sequence. Too. I know. That was so great. And yeah. I, I really wish that would be repeated because it's so crackerjack. There's also just the whole business with uh, the Tharks deciding that, that misunderstanding when they try to communicate and deciding his name's Virginia and calling oh, him yeah, Virginia for good. the whole mm-hmm. film. I don't know. There's there's a lot of bizarre humor in there. Even the uh, the business with Collins and, you know, get behind me, this might be dangerous. Right. And Let the, me know when it gets dangerous. And her first scene, too, where you think she's giving this serious sort of speech and really she's just practicing it and she's kind of like oh i'm messing it up which i thought was really great and humanizing and that for me that sort of sold the character and say i like i said before dominic west i thought was really funny he's like why do we have these swords if we're not even able to use them he just i just thought he delivered every line he had with this really great self-aware sense of humor it made me sad that he wasn't there in more of the film but i i mean i didn't think that john carter was actually very funny that was my earlier point I, I outside of those few bits that you mentioned mm-hmm. there were not really any laugh out loud moments or any moments where i was sort of impressed by the cleverness for every bit like that there was a line that was like over here you blind monkey you know where i was just like really dude? but we're all laughing at that know, maybe it's just so you deliver it better than taylor kitsch did <laughs> i know i was gonna say too that i blame a lot of it on him i think he's just not funny and i mean in a way he's the straight man like so much of what happens with the tharks is meant to be like they're meant to be comic even though they're very very serious mm-hmm. And Willem Dafoe, yeah, I mean, he he does have his comic moments. Like, he's a pretty outright comic character in Boondock Saints. He's got some comic chops, but that's not usually where people go to when they think of Willem Dafoe. You drop in Boondock Saints. Yeah. <laughs> oh, have Tasha. you even seen like that movie? Bounce. Yeah, I wrote about it for uh, New Cult Canada back in the day. It was I mean, one of the come few, on. One of the few that I, I slagged, but it's got some pretty pretty hilarious uh, Willem Dafoe moments. Yeah, and they're is, all Willem Dafoe Is he moments. the one that slaps John Carter when he takes them to the wrong... <laughs> yes. I like that. That that made me laugh. Where he's like, everyone's at the wedding, obviously, <laughs> and he just smacks him across the face. And that's I mean, it's a great little visual joke. Mm-hmm. I, as much as I'm not into the big slobbery CGI trying to be a toy uh, super dog, there's a lot of comic stuff that revolves around the dog being able to get everywhere faster than he can, you know, because it's got magic super speed. Like the whole that's business really... where he's trying to get See, away. That's, that's funny. We don't like the dog. Uh, but I'm, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. Not into the that's dog. what I'm saying is that, uh, you know, John Carter has more funny moments than people yeah. get credit for. Yeah, mm. The dog's great. With regard to, though, to the humor in, uh, in The Martian, a lot of 
films, you know, no matter what situation you're in, I mean, the, some humor is going to benefit a movie, I think. I mean, Spotlight's got a lot of funny stuff in it, too. That's not a comedy. You know, the, 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 Revenant, the Revenant has a couple of moments of lightness in it. Uh, um, uh, right, the snow. I mean, he's trying for something there, but I think, I think it, it adds depth to, to a movie. It adds humanity to a movie. And, and uh, you know, the fact that The Martian does it so often and so effectively really accounts for its presence in that category, even though it doesn't belong there. There's also a degree to which the comedy in John Carter is slapstick comedy. The comedy in The Martian is often very dark comedy, and it's exactly the kind of comedy that human beings default to in situations like that, where things are, are grim and beyond their control. And I mean, we've seen that whenever whenever something goes wrong with a NASA mission and people die, there is that kind of like really bleak black humor that comes up. <laughs> And all of the humor aimed at Watney about being a botanist and how he's not an actual essential part of the crew because they've they've got real scientists. I mean, things like that, that first exchange between him and his former crewmates, that is some bleak, dark stuff. But it not only relieves the tension between them within the film and thus for the viewer, Mm -hmm. it is exactly the kind of humor that you could see people going through in a circumstance like that. Yeah, where they're like, sorry, we left you here. We just don't like you. I thought that was great. Yeah. Well, I kind of wanted to go back to this question. This relates to your topic, Keith, that I had about John Carter, which is what about Mars? And what what, what is what uh, what does Mars look like in The Martian? Yeah, I wanted to talk to, about the production design and kind of to address what you brought up, Scott, is like the, the looks of Mars. They don't look that different. I feel like the colors are a little turned up on John Carter. Uh, the Martian kind of goes for more probably what you'd actually see on Mars. But I mean, the big difference to me is it's 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 a great contrast in terms of how they use the production design because everything in John Carter is designed to call attention to itself. You want to look at those spaceships, like those weird like hovercrafts, uh they're that are really cool looking and then and, and the design of the aliens and and so on and so forth. And the Martian it's no less designed in a way, but it only works if everything there looks functional. If it looks like the sort of the very utilitarian food package you'd have if you were actually on Mars or staying there. And and the sh- I think, you know, the ship itself is sort of big and roomy and cool looking, but it also looks like it's definitely a function first kind of place. So, you know, a place if you were floating through space for a while, it's the kind of space you'd live in. Um, very no nonsense. And it's, you know, kind of keeping with the rest of the movie, which is a no nonsense, let's get from point A to point B, B kind of film. Um, so I think it's a case of those two things where, you know, the production design elements reflecting the overall mission of the film as well. One of the things that made the production design of The Martian convincing to me is there's that feeling of, you know, everything in the hab space has been thought through. It reads as though they actually like consulted with NASA about like, what would this look like? What would this feel like? How could we package this in the smallest way possible? What would be in those cabinets? But as the film goes forward and survival is the only thing on Watney's mind, he cares less about maintaining these spaces in like the pristine conditions that would be necessary, you know, if you're in space and loose detritus would be flying around, or if you had time to concentrate on stuff other than survival and just litter built up in the hab. Later, when he's booting everything out of the uh, escape capsule, just the pile of junk that's, that's falling around. I just, I had this this feeling of stop desecrating Mars. <laughs> You've got these, these, you know, huge, pristine landscapes where nobody has set foot before, and suddenly they're covered with crap. 
And it felt real. It felt like exactly what we would do as a species if we got up there is just like we need we need to worry about like ourselves and our lives. Just huck all of the tinfoil wraps out the window and, and don't worry about where they land. And then, be, then you, see, you get a shot of an alien with like a tear coming <laughs> <laughs> Looking the over the hill. Yeah. Crying. But at the same time, one of the things that makes John Carter age poorly for me visually is that it's got that digital world sense of mm. poorlessness. Like the I really do like the design of the flying machines much more so when Carter actually gets onto one and you see that it's just this mass of like weird whirling gears with giant gear teeth and and things like that. But for the most part, everything's kind of got that digital sheen. Mm -hmm. There was a a clip, I think, on YouTube or maybe on uh, demand when we watched the film that was billed as a gag reel and we watched it. It was actually like roughly 30 seconds of everybody on set dancing in different scenes. But in that you could see, all right, well, here's the scene where we're uh, walking across the giant ancient plinth of doom and then the floor starts to light up and you can see it's a giant green room. Mm-hmm. There's so much of that, that feeling that they're not, there's nothing here. Like they're wearing green suits in a green room, making green faces at green things that'll be there, you know, that'll be in existence later. And there's just kind of a weightlessness to a lot of John Carter that didn't do it for me. One related thing is that I think there's just not a lot of like different beats in John Carter the way there is in The Martian. I mean, The Martian does give you those nice pauses that you sh- would want, I guess, in a space movie where it's like, hey, look, <laughs> it's kind of pretty, right? I mean, this is, you know, we're, we're on, you know, we're out in space and this is what it looks like. And, uh, you know, it's kind of awesome. You do get those beats in The Martian along with the humor and the other things we talked about. And uh, with, with John Carter, there is that need, uh, there's that intensity that need to drive the f- story forward and not a lot of time for for poetry or for comedy or for something else um, that might give you a different feel for that universe. I also didn't get a sense of where everything was and how they were getting to places quickly and what was far from what and Mm -hmm. just what the hell was going on on Mars in general. I just I kind of felt like I had zero sense of this is in John Carter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In John Carter. Like I felt like the Mars of the Martian was you, I mean, it helped that they had maps and that he was, you know, plotting it all out. But I just, I didn't, I was like, oh, is it like a huge deal that they didn't go to the right city for the wedding? Or is it right there? You know, I just mm-hmm. had no idea. Yeah, that that in particular, there's that sense of, I mean, we could be a hundred miles off. Right. Or we just, we need to go next door <laughs> to the <laughs> right. other city. It's Right. And it's interesting, too, because so much of the Martian is just following him traveling for days and days. And there, you actually know how long it takes him to get from place to place. It takes him 50 days. It takes him, you know, every X amount of kilometers he has to refill and that kind of thing. So you really have a sense of how big the planet is versus in John Carter. I genuinely had no idea if it was like a slog for them to get to the cities or not. Or where was the Danga versus helium? And, you know, were they next door neighbors? I had no idea. Well, I mean, how could you be next door neighbors with a, a city that walks around you tell wherever me. it wants to go? <laughs> I wish that John Carter had given us more of a sense of Zaranga as like, yeah. what does it mean to be on a city that's walking around all the time? We we get a couple of these like long camera flybys of like the giant CGI legs of the city pounding. And then we're inside and the, just there's, mm-hmm. there's very little sense of transition. There's very little sense of location to Zadanga itself. I just I guess I wanted 
wanted a little more flavor. Like the idea of a walking city is such a pulp novel concept, and then nothing pulp novel is really done with it. Yeah, it's, they hardly even touch on the. I mean, I did think I just forgot that until you just mentioned it. Well, <laughs> there's a, a city. as far as John Carter's plot is concerned, yeah. there's no reason for it to be right. a walking city. I guess. Yeah, it's one of a bunch of elements that feels like it's in there because somebody loved that detail, probably as Michael a kid, <laughs> like reading the book. And didn't actually have anything to do with it necessarily for the story. I mean, yeah, you, you raise a good point is, is the people involved really do have a lot of respect for, for Burroughs, maybe even too much respect in some ways. Like I, you know, like I said in the, in the in last segment, it feels like some of the best parts are the ones that kind of veer from the source material. But we should talk about the source material. And Natasha, that's something you want to talk about. Yeah, that was my topic. And you're much more versed in Burroughs than I am. I haven't read, I think I read the first John Carter book a very long time ago, but I'm not really uh, nearly as up on him as you are. I did read Andy Where's the Martian and I, I loved that book. It was it was one of those books that I picked up and then actually did find physically difficult to put back down mm. because there was just this sense of <laughs> if I if I close the book I may come back and he may be dead. He's just <laughs> he's on such a tightrope the entire time. And if you had told me like I'm not a huge science reader like I like science shows, I like science radio programs. But if you told me that like a book where somebody meticulously describes <laughs> how to break down and create oxygen in a contained environment, I would have been like, I'm not sure about that. But um, Annie Weir is an interesting author. He he kind of came out of nowhere as far as most people are concerned. But there's a podcast that uh, Chicago local public media station WBEZ does called Nerdette. And they did an interview with Weir. And he's just a fascinating, fascinating dude. There was so much science that he wanted to be in this book that he just couldn't find a way to fit in. And there was so much research and work he did getting all of the science perfect for this book. And he just he comes across as a fascinating guy who really worked through the source material. And then Ridley Scott and his filmmakers really respected it. I was very much not expecting to see the contents of this book on the screen to the degree I did, but they really followed through on it. I read a really interesting uh, interview. I think that was this week with Drew Goddard and Vulture. I mean, I'm not going to quote it. It's because it's super long, but basically he was like, we don't want to dumb anything down. All we have is like the sort of intelligence and the science of this book. I refuse to do that. And um, he was having a really hard time figuring out how to write the scene where Matt Damon is, where he's sitting in the rover trying to figure out um, if he's going to do the fastest man in, in space travel thing. And he's talking to himself. And he's like, they're, they're crazy. They're using the word fastest man because they think they're going to convince me. And then he kind of convinces himself by the end. And I guess Drew Goddard was saying that he he figured that out, felt like he'd solved this huge technical problem and went to to Andy and he was like, no, like no one would ever say fastest. That's not a science term. And so he was like, oh, man, I got to go back and rewrite this whole scene. And he said, oh, no, actually, I can just put that in there. Like scientists don't say fast. They're just trying to convince me by saying that word, which I thought oh, was nice. really interesting and cool. They just keep repeating, go faster than any man in the history of space travel. Like that's a good thing. Like it'll distract me from how insane their plan is. Yeah, I get to go faster than any man in the history of space travel because you're launching me in a convertible. Actually, it's worse than that because I won't even be able to control the thing. And by the way, physicists, when describing things like acceleration, do not use the word fast. So they're only doing that in the hopes that I won't raise any objections to this lunacy. Because I like the way fastest man in the history of space travel sounds 
I do like the way it sounds. Well, I'm I'm told again. I have not read uh, the Martian. I am, I am told that uh, the the prose style is not so scintillating in that book. Is that true? I, 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 I Tasha's not going to like this, but <laughs> um, I read about I think a quarter of the book, and before I saw the movie, and I was enjoying it. I was enjoying it fine. And then I saw the movie, and it kind of took the wind out of my sails of finishing the book because I wasn't finding it that scintillating a read. I, I just just kind of gripped by the story and the science and, you know, the, the character's sense of humor. But in terms of actually, you know, involving me in the ways I like novels to involve me, it wasn't really doing that much in the sense that I felt like the film got it. The film got like what I was enjoying about the, the, the book up on the screen. And it kind of, I guess I should go back and finish it, but I haven't yet. Well, I mean, you can justify that because the, the two versions are so close to each other. If, if you've experienced one, it's like you've experienced the other. I mean, I found the book to I be. I wouldn't take that answer from somebody else, but, but I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> if someone were telling me what I just told you, I would not accept that. But especially for a book I liked, but I'm glad you're, you're absolving me. Well, I mean, life is short. You're and very benevolent. If, you, <laughs> if you're not enjoying a book, don't read it. Go on to the next thing. I was enjoying it's it just okay. fine, but, you know, anyway. But it kind of goes to my just general theory about books that make good sources for adaptation is that, in a way, the most pedestrian material is best for screen adaptation. Like, the, the, most, the, the least amount of psychology, the least amount of internal angst, you know, anything... Uh, you know, if, if it's really just story, if it's a yarn, like that is a good that is a good source for a movie. The Martian kind of struck me as that just based on what I hear about it of being not a great, elegant piece of writing, but incident packed, very simply written, you know, thrill ride. I mean, that seems like a much more ideal thing to make into a movie. At the same time, The Martian, so much of that book is told from Watney's perspective directly to the reader. Mm. I mean, it, you're, what you're basically getting is like the transcript of the tapes that he recorded explaining the steps that he took. It's him talking to himself to stop himself from going nuts. And Gardardian did a pretty amazing job, I think, of opening that story up so it's not just a man talking to himself in a way that works really well on the page and not really well on the screen. You do still have some of that. He's talking to a video camera, explaining what he's doing and trying to keep himself sane. And it works within the context of the film. But I think if there had been too much more of it, it would have become a little overbearing. It starts to feel like exposition and it starts to feel like voiceover. And I think they hit the right balance of that. Whereas with John Carter, I feel like the one of the biggest drags to the movie was the decision to keep in the whole uh, Ming the Merciless wants to marry Dale Arden like plot because that is so specific to 30s pulp fiction and 30s serials the the evil guy is going to marry the girl unless the you know the big feud warrior uh, boyfriend who didn't know her five minutes ago comes along and saves her and that whole thing just feels so aged and well, out a, of its time that's the case also like that vulture piece that we mentioned before it's it's like yeah this was fresh and original when <laughs> Burroughs did it you know this is this was you know the source material i mean this is this predates superheroes but here we have a guy hopping around in a, in a planet that's where he's uh, has gifts that he doesn't have on his home planet i mean you know it's worth remembering that superman was uh was not if did not fly he he uh leapt he leapt uh tall buildings of the single bound just like john carter you know you know with so much in the intervening years it is you know a lot of what made this fresh and original does get lost but even if nobody had aped it since 
I think it would still feel dated. Ultimately, it doesn't matter to me whether she was originally a space scientist or whether she was originally, I kind of suspect in the original, there was much less of that. No, I'm a strong female character. Like, I don't need you to protect me during this five minute period where we established that and I will need you to protect me from the rest of the movie. <laughs> like, I suspect that there was less of that. It feels like a very modern sensibility thing. I guess where I where I draw the line for it myself is just the whole forced marriage thing adds nothing to the story. Right. Like he's he's got the powerful super weapon. He's coming to destroy the last bastion of civilization. He's working with the Bene Gesserit to control everybody. Like it's already there's already plenty of threat. We don't have to add this weird psychosexual thing on top of it all. <laughs> and oh my god, the wedding is just it's such a drag. It just it goes on forever. I'm also not a huge fan of the eh, here comes the wedding. Like if she if she under force says the words I do like that'll be the end of civilization. Right. You know, they haven't invented space divorce on this planet. <laughs> space divorce. She's tinkering with it in the lab. <laughs> <laughs> She's invented the 10th ray, yeah. which is the divorce Divorcing ray. Divorcing you. But yeah. they cut off that. They blew that thing yeah. up, too. So any final thoughts before we move on? Yeah, I have a super important thought, Keith, which is that which is that I wonder if I can get a job as like one of those uh, people who applaud applaud in Mission Control when things go go their way. I just I, it's in every you know you can always expect it as a beat that you expect when when uh, somebody pulls through, and I, I feel like I, I feel like I got the chops for it. I've also got a really important uh, point to make about uh, John Carter, which is why is it when the Tharks capture John Carter, they shave his face? And they don't shave any of the rest of them. I mean, they're all hairless. <laughs> why Why is it that they decide that facial hair is a bad thing for him, having never seen one of his species before, but like chest hair and head hair and who knows what else? Is they can, they can, even they can see that the facial hair is not working for him. <laughs> it all comes back to Mars fashion. Yeah, they're like, this is not your look, yep. my friend. Who wore Mars best? Yeah. (laughs) If you want to find out or, you know, make up your own mind about that uh, (laughs) happily, The Martian is now available on Blu-ray, DVD, and video on demand services. John Carter is available on Blu-ray and DVD and streaming and rental and purchase from most of the usual sources. You can also probably find it for about 50 cents at a used record store at this point. We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, you want to kick things off? Yes, I do want to kick things off. Uh, I watched a film called Beyond the Lights last night. <laughs> Yay! Yeah, closing Say all the women in the room. Closing <laughs> the book, finally, on, on 2014. Um, <laughs> I, I, I liked it. I liked it a great deal, and it, it immediately took me back to Love and Basketball, which is filmed by the same director, uh, Gina Prince-Blythewood. She made (laughs) it 14 years earlier. And what I like about both movies is their sincerity. Um, They don't have the machinations of a rom-com. They don't have the eye-rolling twists of typical Nicholas Sparks-y romantic melodramas. They're just about two people connecting. Uh, In this case, a troubled pop singer and the cop who saves her from a suicide attempt. And um, while I think the film, you know, I think quite beautifully captures the sense of isolation that comes with fame, particularly female pop phenoms who are sort of in this gilded cage. What I appreciated most about it were just, you know, quiet scenes of two really, really beautiful people (laughs) uh, uh, just speaking from the heart. I mean, I just, I think that there's such a virtue and almost a lost virtue 
uh, in romances about just that, are, that have no banter, that are just about two people who are trying to connect. I mean, like that is enough for me. And I think if you take away all of that extraneous business, that's when movies really can move, move you. Like, and, and I was moved by Beyond the Lights. I see you. Beyond the lights. <laughs> uh, but what about you, Rachel? What do you like? I would like to echo your sentiments on Beyond the Lights. That movie is the best. And I also have a romantic comedy, drama, people, places, things. Uh, it's, it's a lovely little lovely little movie starring Jermaine Clement that I feel like everybody sort of slept on a little bit. At least I did. I think it came out a year ago, but it's on Netflix now. He plays a graphic designer who's just gotten divorced from Stephanie Allen. Her name's Charlie, who, fun fact, she's married to Tig Notaro in real life. Catch her in Tig, also on Netflix. Jessica Williams from The Daily Show plays his really smart and really funny student. She sets, she sets him up with her mom, Diane, who's played by Regina Hall, who's fabulous. And the film follows him as he decides whether he's going to pursue things with Diane and how he's going to get over Charlie but the most delightful scenes were the ones where he's figuring out how to parent his twin daughters Uh, Scott I feel like you would really enjoy this movie actually just this dad kind of trying to have fun with his kids and discipline them and not just feed them pizza for breakfast every day and it's Jermaine Clement so he's completely charming and very low key the whole time and um, it was actually just like a moving sweet cute little movie yeah, totally, totally not on my radar at all. Yeah. So. yeah, me neither. Tasha, do you have a person, place, thing, or film you'd like to recommend? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's not a romantic comedy, so mm-hmm. I feel a little left out. I will, of course, uh, third the Beyond the Lights love. Back when we were at The Dissolve, I interviewed the director, Gina Prince-Bythewood, and the star, Gugu Mbatha-Raw. And, like, I I was just – it was one of those things where I kind of <laughs> walked in the room like, I don't want to fangirl at you, but I kind of want to fangirl at you. <laughs> because there was just something so – like raw and emotional about that film um and i just i really connected with it also it has some really both some really impressive musical sequences and some really interesting things to say about the sexualization and commoditization of women in media which none of which sounds like a a, like a really good sell but okay it's super hot people engaging in super sweet romance but do you think it Maybe edges a little on the prudish side. I, when one of the things that that I asked them was actually, like, I thought it went, it was a little in the opposite direction. I thought they were kind of trying to have it both ways by so openly sexualizing her and then saying, "But this is this is naughty. Like, here are her boobs. But how dare these people like want to see her boobs?" I think that no matter where they fell on that line, they were going to get criticism because it's so hard to deal with some of these issues while taking a stand that doesn't make you seem like you're going too far in one direction or the other. And I think they, they navigate it pretty well. As far as my uh, my personal pick, um, I recently got to catch up with the touring shows of the Oscar-nominated shorts for this year, which is always a, an interesting program because it's always so diverse and colorful and covering such a myriad of like countries and topics and ranges and tones. It's a really complete roster this year. There have been years where they're like, Uh, here are three of the animated uh, best short nominees and one of the documentary and two of the live action. It's what we we were able to get the rights for. But this year, apparently all five Oscar nominated shorts are touring all five live action uh, fiction shorts are touring as part of two separate programs. And these were a really strong slate of films. I mean, in the animated side, you've got Pixar's Sanjay's Super Team, which was one of my favorite things of the year, What way more than The Good Dinosaur, which it aired with. Going back and watching it again was so much fun, but it's actually up against some fairly stiff competition. And, you know, I could sit here and describe all the shorts to you, but what's the point? The point is it's a really strong field of contenders. Who's going to win? 
I think Sanjay's super team is probably going to win animated. Um, probably its strongest competition is Don Hertzfeld's World of Tomorrow, mm-hmm. which, boy, that is an interesting both emotional experience and aesthetic experience. I mean, I would be happy with most of these winning. On the live action side, um, my vote would... <laughs> It's funny. They're all such sad stories. And it's like, here's a story about uh, Serbian oppression of Albanians. Here's about a story about conflicts in the Israeli settled portions of Palestinian lands. Here's a story about a tragic and horrible divorce. And the one that I fell in love with was a story about a guy that stutters and is trying to <laughs> figure out how to meet the woman he's been talking to online without making a mess of it. And it's the, the direction on this piece, Scott, I think you as a fan of actually directed projects would I particularly like, like Str- so what, what, Stutterer. So do you think, again, what's the name? Because I, I this is, there are crib sheets out here. That it's called Stutterer, um, directed, written okay, and directed yeah, yeah. by Benjamin Cleary. I don't know if it'll win. It doesn't have the gravitas of the others or the social importance, but it is, I think, the most beautifully directed and beautifully presented. Anyway, these programs are touring. Um, Check your local art theaters. They may be in town. Um, And if not, look for them online. And that's it for me. Keith, what do you have? I keep a close eye on what comes out on DVD and Blu-ray because I, I think I'm you know, I'm one of the few people that still cares. But I care. I think, I think there are others out there. And, and Scott, you'll be happy that Ice Pirates came out on Blu-ray. <laughs> I know. I'm excited. <laughs> I, I don't, boy, that's a, that's Worst that's film a ever made. Yeah. <laughs> my childhood right there. It's not my pick. Uh, and uh, the other, another really good one is, is uh, Hosha Shenzi Assassin is out on Blu-ray this week. But, no. but the one I want to steer people toward is uh, Chirac, which was uh, Spike Lee's film that came out late last year. And, and you talked about uh, Love and Basketball never going too far in any one direction. And Chirac is a film that pretty much goes too far in every direction, but it's part of what it makes it interesting. It, it is a attempt to address the uh, inner city violence of Chicago in particular, but also just America in, in, in general. And in doing so, Spike Lee and, and screenwriter Kevin Wilmot um, adapt Aristophanes' Les Estrada, the, the ancient Greek comedy, um, about um, a sex strike to, to end a war uh, and transposes that to the south side of Chicago. And it's, to, it's done in verse, and except for the parts that aren't done in verse. And it's, uh, it's a broad comedy, except for the parts that are really tragic. And, uh, but I think ultimately there is a sense of concern and urgency and just, you know, raw filmmaking talent that Spike Lee brings to it that, that I don't think it reconciles all those, all those competing elements, but, but I think it does make it cohere into, into interesting film and, and uh, it's not perfect, but it is a, uh, um, uh, I think it's a vital piece of filmmaking and, and I would, uh, I would recommend you check it out. I've had so many problems with his films so often. And this, this brought me back so strongly to his earliest days when just everything that he made had this kind of like crazy, intense feeling, this this energy. And I agree with you. I, I feel like it its parts don't all mesh together, but it's both ambitious and, and it just feels really very much like he has the courage of his convictions on this one. But I, what I thought was more aston- most astonishing about it was just, I really like the verse. I think that people really, the actors really pull off the like fairly complicated high level demand of talking in this like kind of ancient poetry style. I was really convinced by it. I'm I'm right there with the both of you, and I actually want to offer a little uh, I, another pick related to it by uh, Kevin Wilmot, the co 
screenwriter did a film called CSA, Con- Confederate States of America, which was a, a uh, mockumentary uh, that imagined um, if uh, the South had won the Civil War. It's, it's very uh, meticulously done, uh, very smartly conceived and super provocative uh, and very much in that kind of same vein as Chirac. Um, so, so Wilmot is, is as much you know, to credit or blame or whatever for Chirac is, is Spike Lee is, uh, they both are, you know, provocateurs who punch hard. Yeah. The CSA pick reminds me, I've been wanting to see that movie. So that's definitely one I will, uh, I will, I will check out and hopefully our listeners can check out some of these as well. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. But before closing the book on this week's episode, let's reveal the movie pairing for our next episode, which will be appearing February 16th and 18th. Tasha, what will we be doing? For cinephiles, it's always an occasion when a new Coen Brothers movie comes out. Joel and Ethan Coen have been making movies together since 1984's Blood Simple, and films of theirs like Fargo, Raising Arizona, Inside Lewin Davis, and many more are among our favorite features. It's also an occasion for cinephiles when filmmakers make films about filmmaking and let the rest of us in on how they see the inner workings of their particular sausage factory. The Coen's latest feature, Hail Caesar, does exactly that with a largely comic look at a 1950s Hollywood studio where fixer Eddie Mannix, played by Josh Brolin, deals with one crisis after another on a long, busy day of production. But this isn't the Coen's first film about Hollywood. In 1991, their film Barton Fink also took a behind-the-scenes look at the film industry, in this case through the adventures of a hapless screenwriter played by John Turturro, trying to overcome writer's block while writing a wrestling movie at a dilapidated hotel. These are two very different films, but we're going to look at the ways they both deal with the difficulties of creativity in the movie industry, especially when it intersects with the hell of other people. Hail Caesar opens in theaters on Friday, February 5th. Barton Fink is available for digital rental on Amazon and iTunes, or you can find it on DVD and Blu-ray. I got that date circled on my calendar. That's, you know, a, new, a new Coen Brothers film is definitely something to look forward to. Red ink, giant sharpie. <laughs> In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of John Carter, The Martian, anything else film-related. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before we close out this episode, where can you find everyone these days? Rachel? You can find me at Uproxx, Vulture, Vanity Fair, Cosmo, and random other places from time to time, and also at, at Rachel underscore Handler on Twitter. Scott, what about you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Peach at, at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, you can also find my writing at NPR, Variety, Vulture, New York Times, Washington Post, Rolling Stone, and Oscilloscope's Musings. Uh, Tasha, what about you? I am a full-time film critic and TV writer at The Verge. You can also find me on Twitter under my name, Tasha Robinson. Keith? And you can follow me on Twitter at KFIPS3000 and working behind and in front of the scenes at uprocks.com. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show via Twitter at NextPicturePod or by visiting nextpictureshow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, think about reading and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks again to Genevieve Kosky for producing the show. You can find her at Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. And thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. And finally, we'd like to thank our parent podcast, Film Spotting, for all their help, input, and support. Please see you next time, whether you're on Earth or on Mars. Or by soon. There's a star.